This morning, uh, we begin a series of messages through the book of Revelation. Parts of it will go faster through and other parts slower. Um, I just wanted to say by way of introduction that this book, um, the final book of the Bible, is uh, truly remarkable. It's like one of a kind. It is um, a prophecy that is also a letter, like Paul wrote to Romans, and it speaks through apocalyptic Im images and, and symbols. Um, so you might call it a, an apocalyptic letter, or excuse me, an apocalyptic prophecy set in the form of a letter, and we're going to be looking at that over the next months. Now, if you have not uh, joined us on the, for the classes that we had on Wednesday night, I highly encourage you. You can find them online on YouTube and listen to the first one or watch it and the third one. You can leave out the second one. So our scripture reading this morning is the text for the message. It is found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his, this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. Father in heaven, we bow before you and we plead with you in the name of Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit to thunder in our hearts through your word. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the churches and to our church through this ancient word. Father, I pray that you would refine us, that you would reform us, that you would perhaps reawaken us to the realities in which we live, and that we would be found faithful to you, faithful to your gospel and faithful to your mission, wherever you have placed us. I pray that you would help me to teach this in a way that is clear and compelling and true to the text. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I had a youth pastor, a youth minister, who um, decided that he was gonna take his young flock of teenagers on a 100-mile bike ride. The first question I asked, because I wasn't a big cyclist back then or now, was how many hills are there going to be? And our youth minister, youth pastor, said, that's just a few ripples. Easy. It'll be fun. Reluctantly, I said, okay, I'll go. Well, this 100-mile bike trip was from Tahoe National Forest down Highway 49 
you ever been down Highway 49? It's extremely curvy. It goes through all these mining towns like Downeyville and so forth, all the way to Auburn. So we started, and it was, it was great at first, 19 miles downhill. I didn't have to pedal at all. And that's easy kind of cycling. And then we hit the, the, the town of Downeyville, and then we started to hit the ripples, and still it, it wasn't that bad. And by the way, I should say, I've driven that road now so many times, I can't believe that our youth minister would lead a bunch of teenagers down the curvy roads of Highway 49. It's extremely dangerous. But back then, you could get away with almost anything in youth ministry, which you can't now, right? So we're, 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 we're uh, get to Downeyville, and we cross over the north uh, fork of the Yuba River, and then we start up this grade up the side of a mountain. It was a long, steep grade. And I remember thinking to myself, this ain't no ripple. This is a mountain. And that wasn't the only one because we went down the other side of the mountain and crossed the middle fork of the Yuba River. These are deep canyons. Back up the other side, up another mountain, back down the other side to the south fork of the Yuba River and up the other side to Nevada City. There were no ripples. These were mountains. And I remember feeling, <laughs> and I was mad, I felt duped, I felt deceived, and it's amazing that I'm actually a Christian with that kind of influence. I say that facetiously, that the youth minister still is a good friend. But I think sometimes we pitch the gospel that way. Discipleship that's way, that way. That is, we say, you know, to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus, you're going to hit some ripples along the way. Maybe some road bumps in your marriage. Maybe some challenges here or there, but God is going to make your life better. After all, he wants you to be healthy and prosperous. That kind of a pitch of the gospel of what Christianity is like or discipleship's like, of course, is, is a soft sell to say the least. And it easily leads people to a sense that God is kind of like a cosmic genie who answers your wants and wishes. And then when life doesn't turn out as you thought it should, according to the dreamy version of the gospel, well, then the false dream is broken and people walk away. God isn't as I expected him to be. When Jesus told us what it was to be a Christian, that is to be a disciple, he was straight with us. That is, he didn't sugarcoat anything. He said it exactly as it would be. It would be the most difficult thing in the world. He said this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. He said, they, that is the enemies of God's people, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now that's straight, shooting straight, tribulation. Tribulation isn't something that's reserved for the future. He says, you're going to experience it all along the way. On top of that, some of you are going to get put to death. Now that's pretty bad. And if you want to be loved by the world, don't follow me because he says the world will hate you for my name's sake. Straight shooting. Christian life is going to be a tremendous challenge. Not of ripples, but mountains. And it, Revelation, the book, in many respects is an expansion of this idea. That is, it gives us a, a, a view of, of what's ahead, what the journey's like. And, and it, it gives us, if you will, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, there are wonderful goods, right? God's love and God's mercy and God's presence and the promise of hope and a new creation. The promise that he walks with us all the way through. 
the goodness of fellowship and Christian community upon which we lean at times and we draw strength. There's, there's a lot of goodness, and it's drawn into this book. But there's a lot of ugly, and there is also a lot of bad. So we're going to look at these first eight verses, which really introduce us to like what the book is about. Any good introduction kind of tips off where it's going. And he gives us what this book is about. And I'm just going to sum it up in three words. It's about Christ, as you'd expect. It's about the future. And it's about the church. It's about Christ. It's about the future. And it's about the church. Christ. Revelation, above all else, is about him. Namely, his sovereignty and his glory. His sovereignty and his glory. This is how the book starts out. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to pronounce that in Greek, you'd recognize it. Apocalypsis, Jesu Christu. You can figure that out. That's apocalypse, Jesus Christ, right? Or the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word is not a scary word, apocalypsis. It simply means to reveal or to unveil. Like opening a gift at Christmas. You don't know what's inside of it until you open the wrapper. Well, this revelation is kind of like opening a package, We get to see Jesus for who he is. Now, it could be that this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it really is is one of the most important phrases of the book, the first. It could mean a revelation from Jesus Christ or a revelation about Jesus Christ. And for sake of argument, I think it means both, from context and content. The context right after that statement, makes it clear that it's from Jesus. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So God the Father gives the revelation to the Son, and the Son gives it to the servants, namely Christians. So in one sense, it is clearly from Jesus Christ. But the content of both these first eight verses, as well as the whole book, tells us this is also a revelation about Jesus Christ. It unveils him. It unveils him in a way that other books do not, at least not as clearly or as loftily. You read in a couple verses down, he just like bursts into John as he's doing his little introduction. He just bursts forth in worship or doxology as if he can't help himself because he is so um, unbelievably um, astonished at Jesus. So in his opening introduction, he says, end of verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is a statement of absolute sovereign rulership, of kingship. He's the ruler, not in the future, but right now, he is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And then here's this worship moment where he says, to him, that is Jesus, who loves us and and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever, amen. That last part, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen, are words that are only appropriate for divinity. Dominion, rule, And you're going to see from beginning to end that nothing happens on planet Earth that that is not given express permission from the lamb that was slain. That is, from Jesus as the king. It's interesting, the word throne in this book, 
occurs 37 times. The throne is a seat of power. 37 times. That's more than any other book in the Bible. In fact, the word occurs more in Revelation than all of the prophets combined. Why? Because this book is about sovereignty. It is about rulership. It is about what Christ is doing on the throne. And that makes it unique. It, it, unique. The, we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they mostly look back. Written after the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection. That is the dominant theme or subject of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the, is the passion, is the suffering and the death of Jesus, and then the resurrection. But this book, which assumes it and is going to speak of it, goes on to talk about the unfolding reign and exaltation of Jesus, looking forward. That's the uniqueness of this book and why it's so wonderful. It gives us a look, a peek of some wonderful, potent images of the reign of Jesus Christ over our world. And that has been that belief that Jesus rules. Though we can't see it, at least not with our physical eyes, we can believe it. Yes, there's a lot of chaos in the world and a lot of evil in the world. And Revelation will go on to say, yes, there is. And Jesus is in charge of that too. And he bends it to his will. In fact, he, he uses it to accomplish his mission. The time of uh, that John is writing this, the Apostle John, 90s AD, there was a, a rather despicable, diabolical, tyrannical emperor who ruled in Rome by the name of Domitian. He's the first emperor not only to allow emperor worship, but to demand it under punishment if you refuse. Can you imagine forcing people to worship you and then punish them if they don't? One thing that Christians wouldn't do, at least many, is worship a human king. And he slaughtered them. Slaughtered Christians. A lot of Christians got slaughtered by this guy in this time in which this was written. And this belief that, you know what, Jesus is in charge. And this, 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 this evil emperor answers to somebody higher. And if God is allowing this to happen, he's allowing it for a good purpose. And one of those purposes is his mission. A dominant theme in this book is that God wins through death. God wins through suffering. That is, the lamb conquered by way of his blood. So oftentimes in the giving of, giving of life, one's life, salvation happens, just as it did when Jesus gave his. But this has been, like I said, a bedrock truth of, of Christianity, is the belief that God rules and reigns. But let me add this, because when we think of sovereignty or we think of rule, it can sound cold and calculated, distant, disconnected from life. We have to remember that Jesus is a king and exercises sovereignty like no other king. Uh, he is altogether entirely different in every, in every way. Again, reminded of these words to him who loves us. That's a present tense. To him who Loves us, us, loves us, and has freed us. Freed us from sin, freed us, free, uh, freedom from second death. He has freed us by his blood. Now, tell me this. What king bleeds to save slaves? What king 
bleeds, gives his life to save broken slaves like us? The answer is no, no, no human king that we know of. This is, this is a, a God who's willing to allow himself to be crucified for the sake of slaves. That's why he can be trusted with, with everything, with our futures and our hearts and our families, because he bled. And then I love this. He says, we, we don't feel this as much because we don't, we're not Catholics and, and we're not part of the Old Testament um, worshiping system where he's kingdom and priests. Like we're a kingdom, we're already citizens of his eternal kingdom in his loving reign, and we will be there and be part of that kingdom forever and ever and ever. But also priests, like that, a priest is someone who has special access to God. You know, someone who's close, someone who's intimate. And that's anyone who believes, actually, is a priest. The, the New Testament does not acknowledge two, a two-class system within the church where there are the laymen and then there are the priests. It just doesn't exist. Jesus did away with all of that. He's our only priest and has made us priests. So we have access to the Lord, access to God. So why we call pastors or elders or deacons, not priests. That's different. Which means if you're a believer, you have every bit as much access to God as I do. And some people come up to me and say, Pastor, will you pray for me? As if, and I think the assumption is you got special way with the Lord, you know? Like you got one-on-one communication with him in a way I don't. And it's like, nah, that's false theology, Right? We were at a, a planning meeting for, for my daughter's wedding. This is getting close now. And, uh, and the lady found out that I'm going to officiate, which scares the tar out of me because I'm quite fearful of bawling in the middle of it. That's true. Um, you may think I'm tough, but I mean, I'm just a big baby when it comes to my, my daughter and my kids. So anyway, so that she's like, you're going to officiate? So, so you're a priest then? I'm like... If I was a priest, at least of the Catholic order, then I wouldn't be married. And if I wasn't married, I wouldn't have a daughter, which means we wouldn't be talking right now. So just think that the, the privileged position that Jesus has given you as a king, he has given you the position of a priest before him. Right here, right now, when we sing, we're singing in his presence. He's, this is this is holy, holy place right here, and, and you're special to him. That's the kind of king we have. He bleeds to free and then make us close to God. So this book is going to be about the sovereign glory of Jesus, the glory of his love, the glory of his power, the glory of his wisdom. Second, it's about the future. It's about the future, obviously. In particular, a future that's filled with war and conquest, War and conquest. This is, a, this is a book that talks about conflict from beginning to end between evil and good. The forces of light versus the forces of darkness. Again, back to the introduction. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Notice he says show, not tell, because he's going to communicate in images and symbols. God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Must soon take place. That is, they necessarily must come about. The simple fact that he put must there, must means has to happen, indicates that there are no accidents in this unfolding book. It has to happen this way. And the fact that it says soon 
must soon take place indicates that this isn't some far-off future space of time, but it was a time that had already started to dawn and would continue to unfold. This first-century Christians would have experienced this war, the beginnings of this war, the, the onslaught, the attacks, must soon take place. Well, what's this future about? I mean, that he talks about that must soon take place. As I said, it's a future that's filled with war, conquest, and then hope. So let me give you a sample. Just kind of read some verses from this book, just so you, you feel that this is part of the tapestry of this, of this book. And one of the elders said to me, John is speaking in one of his visions, chapter 5, Weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, a song we just sang, used those lyrics. The root of David has conquered. That is, a, that is a military word, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Chapter 11, verse 7. And when they finish their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit, and we'll get into the imagery of that in a future date, will make war on them, that is, Christians, and conquer them and kill them. So you have war and death. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives even to death. So they conquered the dragon. Chapter 12, verse 7. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. It's a symbol of the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought back. The dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on her, the rest of her offspring, that is Christians, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And it was also, chapter 13, verse 7, and it was, this is talking about the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints, that is make war on Christians and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. And you might pause there and go, given by who? By the king. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord, Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. That's 17, verse 14. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it. This is an image of Jesus, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then the final one. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. It's like war, war, conquest. Like... The book brings to light the fact that we are in a cosmic battle as Christians. A cosmic battle. And the first century Christians understood that. Like the battle was here. The pastor of Smyrna, a man with a funny name, Polycarp, was burned at the stake for refusal to recant or denounce or deny Christ. And then when the, the flames didn't do their work, they stabbed him. That's history. That's one of the churches, Smyrna, that he's writing to. Antipas also was killed. That's in chapters 2 and 3. Was killed for his refusal to renounce Christ. They understood it was a battle. And people are dying as a result of it. To me, that's one of the big takeaways, and, and maybe uh, one of the ways that I hope that this book will, will meet us in a profound way to open our eyes to the realities around us. 
we tend to see things with our physical eyes. Like we think that the biggest war, I'm not saying everybody thinks this, but this is the sense that I get, that the biggest fight we have right now is between the alt-left and the alt-right. Or between the socialists and the capitalists. Or between the races. Or between the rich and the poor. And the disproportionate distribution of wealth. Is that really the war? Is that really the fight? I don't think so. Like this war that is raging, that is a spiritual one at heart, will have eternal ramifications for people's souls. Eternal ramifications for people's souls. And Revelation just wakes us up like, wait. You need to see things as they really are. We are in a battle that has eternal ramifications, light versus darkness, and we are in the middle of it. We are in the middle of it. And do we see things that way? That's, that's, a, that's a very simple question to ask. Do we see that we are in the middle of a battle? Or, <laughs> this is the image that comes to mind, are we a little bit like J.R.R. Tolkien's hobbits living in the Shire? You know, we're singing our songs and we're dancing our dances and we're smoking our pipes and we're drinking our beer. Unaware that Sauron's armies are making their way into Middle Earth. Sauron's armies are making their way into Middle Earth. And our job, as mentioned last week, is to engage in prayer and with the gospel the only weapons capable of destroying strongholds and rescuing slaves and making them saints. Can you imagine, for a second, some army rangers in Afghanistan, and they're in hostile territory, and one of them stops, looks around, and goes, wow, this is really beautiful here. In fact... Guys, what would you think about building a summer home here? And then, you know what we can do? We can set up shop, open a 7-Eleven, and sell Slurpees. And how cool would it be? Because it gets hot here. Let's have a pool in the backyard. It's all of a sudden now the focus is off the context of war, and now they're focused on how can we make life better. Rather than saying, you know, we don't have time for that right now. We got to keep our eyes peeled. We got to stay frosty, stay vigilant, because we're at war. Again, I'm, I'm asking you, isn't this how we should see things? That is, that we are at war rather than let's make life better for ourselves, rather than engage. I think this book calls us to engage. It's, it's speaking to me. It's calling me to engage with the darkness through what God has given to us. It's a a wake-up book. It's not just a book to tantalize or or, uh, satisfy our curiosity about the future. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to engage. It's a call to be in the fight for the sake of the king, knowing he's with us and he is the conqueror. So that's what it's about. It's about Christ, his sovereignty, and his glory. It's about the future, And that future is already here. 
and it is also about the church. In particular, the call to endurance and loyalty to Christ above all else. You'll hear that word endure or conquer over and over and over again to the church. It's written to the church. In the beginning and the end, it's written to the church and everything in between. It's for the church. So John writes, verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and by Asia he doesn't mean China, he means Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey on the west coast of Turkey, to be more specific. Grace to you and peace. This sounds like a letter from Paul, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And That's a, a kind of a play on the sacred name of Yahweh, which is I am, right? Who is and was and is to come. And also from the seven spirits who are before the throne, the seven spirits, especially when wedged between Yahweh or the Father and Jesus is the spirit of God. The seven just being a, a symbol of fullness. So he's greeting from the one who is, who was, and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne in Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. To the seven churches. This whole book is built on a series of sevens. You know, comes right out of the Old Testament idea of Sabbath, and it symbolizes completion or totality. You know, God created the earth according to Genesis 1 in six days, and then on the seventh day, after everything was completed, he rested. So it's a sign of fullness. So why these seven churches? He's going to address these seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. Why these churches? Because there were more churches than seven in this vicinity, like Colossae that Paul wrote to, and also Hierapolis, there were churches in both of those places, and they are within sight of Laodicea. So he left out some churches, but included, included others. The question is why? why? Why these seven? I think the best answer for that is because they represent the universal church in the sense that each of them struggles in their own unique way. Each one is facing the threat of compromise from something. And so he picks these seven and addresses their areas of challenge and their struggles so that the future generations of the church, including our generation, could hear God's answer to that particular struggle. So they represent the universal church. They struggled as we do in different ways. And we're going to hear Jesus speak. And I would love to know, what would Jesus say to Parkway? But that's in the weeks ahead. The church has always been subject, vulnerable to attack, as were the seven churches. And so Jesus addresses them to help them overcome their particular issues, struggles, or areas of potential compromise, and we'll look at those. But let me just, I think the struggles can be fit into one of three categories that churches, even churches today. Persecution, deception, and seduction. Persecution is a threat. People early on in the early church, not all of them, but some of them, they caved. So either you offer incense to Caesar or you die. And they said, okay, I'll offer incense to Caesar, and we're disloyal to Christ. So persecution is a very real threat. And Jesus is going to address it. Deception. Deception is another major threat. 
of watering down or distorting the gospel itself. That is the truth of God's word. Deception, that's what deception does. And then seduction. Now, deception and seduction are, are related, but they're also different in the sense that deception aims at your mind, the change your thinking, while seduction aims or appeals to your heart, your desires, in particular fallen desires. And all three of those, persecution and deception and seduction, are all symbolized by the beast that, make, that makes war, by the false prophet who deceives, and the harlot of chapter 17 that seduces. Now, we might not be in a place where we're experiencing physical persecution. Not yet, anyway. But deception and seduction, I think that's everywhere. The temptation to change our message, to make it more likable, more appealing, less absolute, less exclusive. The temptation is to change it, and that is a deception or seduction. Desiring to be or have a message that caters to the fallen desires, sexual desires of the culture, it's here. We face it every day. We have to recognize, church, speaking to everyone who believes, we have to be ready to fight. We have to be in the fight, not with weapons of flesh, but with the gospel and with prayer and community because that's what we're called to do. And you're gonna hear this clarion call to all of us. Endure, 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 persevere, 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 overcome, overcome, overcome. Because the one who overcomes will experience the promises of chapters 20, 21, and 22. So I look forward, I hope you look forward as we go through this book to lay hold of the promise of verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would accomplish your work um, in our hearts. Um, Bring conviction where conviction is needed. Bring sobriety where sobriety is needed. Bring an increased sense of vigilance where vigilance is needed. We pray that we would not be sleepy or lazy or have our eyes on the wrong fight. But give us a heart, Lord, to follow you, to endure, to persevere, and to overcome as you have called us and as you, as you have empowered us to do as one who loves us and has freed us from our sin by your blood. In Christ's name I pray.